Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your host with all the latest mental health related news. And that includes everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the potential new treatments for mental illness and insights into the causes of it. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources. Along the way, trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and to better inform the general public about mental health issues. And welcome to Psychiatry Today. This edition was pre-recorded for airing initially on November the 11th, 2015. Uh, so we salute veterans uh, today on, on Veterans Day 2015. And uh, those of you who are regular and or longtime listeners to this podcast know that uh, I feel strongly about veterans' mental health and often give you updates on whatever information we have in terms of advancing the cause of improving the mental health of our soldiers and our active uh, duty um, <clears throat> military, not just veterans. Um, this week, we're going to start off with some other items, however. I found a few articles that had to do with memory, and so I thought that would be interesting to bring to you. A lot of people get concerned about having trouble remembering things, especially those of us who are 50 and older, worry about the onset of Alzheimer's or other types of dementia, when honestly, with very few exceptions, that worry certainly is unfounded, but nonetheless, thought you'd find it interesting maybe to glean some insights into memory and we'll talk about how the brain creates durable memories, long-lasting memories. We'll talk about how depression may interfere with memory and we'll talk about how taking a nap can boost learning and memory. So first Brain Mechanism for Creating Durable Memories Now, rehearsing information immediately after being given it may be all you need to make it a permanent memory, according to a recent study. Psychologists found that the same area of the brain activated when, lying, when, <coughs> sorry, when laying down a memory is also activated when rehearsing that memory which makes sense. Now this research was published on October 27th in the Journal of Neuroscience and it has implications for any situation in which accurate recall of an event is critical such as witnessing an accident or crime. Now previous research that I've uh, read shows that if you wait longer until after someone has witnessed an event, their recall isn't going to be as accurate. 
It will change. They will forget certain details, even add some details that weren't there. Uh, so the idea of rehearsing something right after you see it to remember it better certainly makes sense. Now, <clears throat> this study showed that a brain region known as the posterior cingulate, an area whose damage is often seen in those with Alzheimer's disease, plays a crucial role in creating permanent memories. This region not only helps us to recall the episodic details of an event, but also integrates the memory into our knowledge and understanding, which makes it resistant to forgetting. The study involved showing participants 26 short videos of clips taken from YouTube of around 40 seconds in length with a narrative element. For 20 of the videos, the participants were given around 40 seconds after each video to relate either in their heads or out loud details of the video. For the remaining six videos, this rehearsal period was not given. Up to two weeks later, participants were still able to recall many details of the videos they had rehearsed, whereas the non-rehearsed videos were largely forgotten. MRI scans revealed that the same area of the brain, the posterior cingulate, was most associated with the benefits of rehearsal. Here, to the degree to which brain activity matched when watching and rehearsing the videos predicted how well the videos were remembered a whole week later. Recent memories are susceptible to being lost until a period of consolidation has elapsed. In this study, a brief period of rehearsal has a huge effect on the ability to remember complex, lifelike events over periods of one to two weeks. And it also showed this link of this rehearsal effect to processing in this particular part of the brain, the posterior cingulate. The findings have implications for any situation where accurate recall of an event is critical, such as witnessing an accident or crime. Memory for the event will be significantly improved if the witness rehearses the sequence of events as soon as possible afterwards. The group is conducting new research to investigate how these processes relate to memory loss in Alzheimer's disease. Well, while that's going on, and hopefully that will give us useful information, uh, I think there is a useful take-home from this study, and that is certainly if you witness some event that you may be called upon at a future date to relate, it helps to immediately after you witness it rehearse the details over and over in your mind uh, to consolidate what you saw into long-term memory. Now, this needn't be applicable to seeing some sort of event uh, that you would be later called upon to uh, act as a witness to. It could be applied to anything that you think is important that you want to make sure you remember. When you hear it or read it or see it, uh, rehearse it or say it or think it over and over in your mind, 
and that will help to consolidate that memory and make it longer lasting. Next, a study that shows how depressive thoughts persevere and interfere with memory in people with depression. Intrusive, enduring depressive thoughts are an ever-present part of daily life for people with depression. A first-of-its-kind study published earlier this year in the Journal of Affective Disorders shows that depressive thoughts are maintained for longer periods of time for people with depressed mood, and this extended duration may reduce the amount of information that these individuals can hold in their memory. The findings have far-reaching implications for understanding how depression damages memory as well as how depression develops and persists over the course of an individual's lifetime. People with depression or even healthy people with a depressed mood can be affected by depressive thoughts. And it's a well-known fact that people with serious clinical depression struggle cognitively. They have trouble with memory, both storing new information into memory and retrieving old information from memory. Depression seems to slow down the mind and uh, make it unable to focus and think clearly. Now, negative thoughts tend to last longer for those with depression. This can also interfere with memory. But this particular study is unique in showing that these negative thoughts triggered from stimuli in the environment can persist to, to the point that they hinder a depressed person's ability to keep their train of thought. For this study, researchers recruited 75 university undergraduate students. What else is new? If you're a doctoral candidate, they're readily available. 30 students were classified as having depressive symptoms, and 45 participants were categorized as not exhibiting depressive symptoms. All participants were asked to respond to a sentence featuring depressive thoughts, such as, I am sad, or people don't like me, or neutral information. They were then asked to remember a string of numbers. Individuals with depressed mood forgot more number strings than people without depressed mood when responding to a sentence with negative information. People with depressed mood who were given the depressive thought first remember 31% fewer number strings compared to people without depressed mood and people with depressed mood who were given the number string first. We all have a fixed amount of information we can hold in memory at one time. The fact that depressive thoughts do not seem to go away once they enter memory certainly explains why depressed individuals have difficulty concentrating or remembering things in their daily lives. This preoccupation of memory by depressive thoughts might also explain why more positive thoughts are often absent in depression. There simply is not enough space for them. 
The authors suggest that this greater dedication of memory resources to depressive thoughts and consequently an impoverished ability to hold positive thoughts in memory might be the key to understanding how depression develops and continues throughout an individual's lifespan. Interventions such as mindfulness-based cognitive therapy are quite successful in empowering depressed people to recognize and better regulate the content of their thoughts. The goal is to continue to study how such therapeutic approaches can alter the depressed brain and how these alterations might result in better memory and outcomes for persons with depression. Alright, we're going to take our uh, commercial break before we go to our next topic. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Going over several articles relating to memory, and this next one, is called A Nap to Recap, How Reward and Daytime Sleep Boost Learning. Now, a new study suggests that receiving rewards as you learn can help cement new facts and skills in your memory, particularly when combined with a daytime nap. Now, it's already been well established that uh, people who take a snooze after uh, learning new information, remember it better than those who stay awake doing other things. Uh, so let's see what take this particular study has on that situation. The findings are from the University of Geneva and they are to be published in the journal eLife. Reveal that memories associated with a reward are preferentially reinforced by sleep. Even a short nap after a period of learning is beneficial. So they're saying if there's a reward associated with whatever information is to be remembered and that is further consolidated by a nap, 
it's uh, a much stronger association. The memories are better preserved. The rewards may act as kind of a tag, sealing the information in the brain during learning. During sleep, that information is favorably consolidated over information associated with a low reward or no reward and is transferred to areas of the brain associated with long-term memory. The findings are relevant for understanding the devastating effects that lack of sleep can have on achievement. 31 healthy volunteers were randomly assigned to either a sleep group or a wake group and the sensitivity of both groups to reward was assessed as being equal. Participants' brains were scanned while they were trained to remember pairs of pictures. Eight series of pictures were shown and volunteers were told that remembering pairs in four of them would elicit a higher reward. Following a 90-minute break of either sleep or rest, they were tested on their memory for the pairs and asked to rate how confident they were about giving a correct answer. Participants were also asked to take part in a surprise test of exactly the same nature three months later. Both groups' performance was better for highly rewarded picture pairs, but the sleep group performed better overall. Strikingly, during the surprise test three months later, participants who had slept after learning were selectively better for the highly rewarded pairs. The people who slept were also more confident of achieving a correct answer during the memory tests even after three months. The MRI scans revealed that the sleep group experienced greater activity of a region of the brain called the hippocampus, a small area in the temporal lobe which is critical for forming memories. This correlated with a higher number of bursts of brain activity called slow spindles. After three months, the sleep group also showed increased connectivity between the hippocampus, the medial prefrontal cortex, and the striatum. These uh, other areas are parts of the brain also implicated in memory consolidation and reward processing. We already knew that sleep helps strengthen memories, but now we also know that it helps us select and retain those that have a rewarding value. It makes adaptive sense that the consolidation of memory should work to prioritize information that is critical to our success and survival. Well, it's an interesting take about the whole reward angle, but again, uh, this just reinforces the need to get a good night's sleep if you're trying to learn and retain information. Uh, you take a nap after learning this information, and especially if there's a reward associated with it, you remember it better. Uh, but even without these relatively uh, artificial constructs um, that take place in a research lab, in normal everyday life, um, if you take a nap 
or you just go to bed for the night, make sure you get a good night's sleep, that's going to help you remember that information uh, because we know that consolidation of memory takes place during sleep. So it's, again, very important. Uh, this is why previous research showed that students who do a brief but thorough review of the material for uh, an exam they're having the next day and get a good night's sleep do much better than students who stay up all night or m too much of the night studying intensely and don't get enough sleep. Alright, well next up on psychiatry today, an item of interest for those of you who are women of reproductive age, uh, who are pregnant, who may be getting pregnant in the future, uh, or those of you who have daughters or granddaughters who are pregnant or may get pregnant in the future. It has to do with how pregnant women can avoid depression, and that's by staying active. Pregnant women suffering from symptoms of depression are more likely to sit down for long periods of time. Uh, according to a new UK study, which also demonstrated that physical activity reduces the risk of gestational diabetes. Now, what that really means is women who are pregnant, who are depressed, uh, typically are spending too much time sitting, not enough exercising. And this not only increases their risk of depression, it increases their risk of becoming diabetic during their pregnancy. To avoid feeling depressed and putting on too much weight and contracting gestational diabetes, it is better for pregnant women not to spend too much time sitting. Get up and be more active, especially in the second trimester. Now, this study involved almost 1,300 pregnant women. The participants had to report on their level of physical activity and emotional well-being in the first trimester of pregnancy and at the end of the second. Researchers discovered that the pregnant women with the most depressive symptoms were also those who were the most likely to spend a lot of time sitting. The results took into account such variables as the participants body mass index and socioeconomic status. The women who spent more time sitting down during the second trimester and did fewer amounts of moderate or vigorous physical activity gained significant amounts of weight between the first and second trimester. The researchers also noted that these women had a higher blood glucose level in the 28th week of pregnancy and were therefore more at risk of developing gestational diabetes. Encouraging women to take breaks from sitting down might be an easier public health policy to implement than increasing their physical activity during pregnancy. A subtle distinction, uh, don't talk about increasing physical activity, talk about not sitting down as much. Hmm. Well, researchers noted that the advice of reducing sitting time has the potential to benefit pregnant women's mental and physical health as well as their weight 
and their baby's health when born if the approach is applied as a preventative measure from the start of pregnancy. It is estimated that approximately 10% of women suffer from moderate to severe depression during pregnancy and that of those women over 25% subsequently suffer from postnatal depression or postpartum depression and this is a very important thing to mention because postpartum depression gets all of the attention uh, for a lot of different reasons for one thing unfortunately it is often confused with postpartum psychosis uh, with which it has nothing to do with and no relation at all between the two illnesses uh, postpartum psychosis is basically a very very serious emergency during which uh, there's grave danger to the life of the baby and the woman's other children as well as the woman herself uh, <clears throat> but the other thing about all the attention to postpartum depression is it ignores the fact that there's a great deal of depression unfortunately that occurs during pregnancy and that's what gets lost in all the focus on the postpartum period uh, so this article about this study cites that it's about 10% of women who have moderate to severe, moderate to severe depression during pregnancy and then a quarter of those will go on to develop postpartum depression. Uh, so I think that is more than enough reason for all women to be encouraged to remain physically active throughout their pregnancy to prevent depression, to keep their blood sugar lower and prevent gestational diabetes, um, and therefore also to go a long way to preventing any postpartum depression. And uh, exercise and therapy are very, very effective ways for women to uh, combat depression during their pregnancy as well as in the postpartum period. As is the case for the non-pregnant uh, women and, and men. Exercise uh, is very healthy for the mood as well as physically uh, so it should come as no surprise that when you're studying uh, women in pregnancy that uh, being physically active is beneficial I do question a little bit you know why the researchers felt the message had to be nuanced so carefully uh, saying well let's emphasize not sitting too much as opposed to being more physically active perhaps they're thinking that um, pregnant women are sensitive to messages that if you don't do this for yourself you're going to do some harm for yourself or the baby they're, they are uh, bombarded with a lot of messages that can cause guilt if they're not following them perhaps that's it well we're going to take another commercial break we'll be back with more after this you're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott the disease of addiction is a life altering challenge not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? 
We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Next up is a stress and the workplace update, or mental health in the workplace update, if you will. Over half of workers with depression do not recognize their need for treatment. More than half of workers who reported symptoms of depression did not perceive a need for treatment. This was a Canadian study published in the Journal of Occupational and Environmental Medicine, which investigated barriers to mental health care experienced by workers and the resulting impact on productivity. As many as 40% of participants were experiencing significant depressive symptoms, and of that group, 52.8% did not recognize a need to seek help. Similar rates have also been observed in population studies in the United States and Australia. The results suggest that a significant number of workers who are experiencing symptoms of depression do not recognize they could benefit from help and so they don't seek to obtain it. The findings are based on responses from over 2,200 Ontario adults who completed either a telephone questionnaire or a web-based survey. Participants were between 18 to 65 years old and had been in the workforce during the preceding 12 months. As part of the study, researchers also developed a model to help employers identify key barriers to treatment. Strategies could be targeted to these barriers to increase the use of mental health services among workers with symptoms of depression. Researchers calculated that by removing the barrier caused by the unrecognized need for treatment, there would be a 33% decrease in work productivity loss. It's important for employers to know where to start when it comes to tackling productivity loss related to untreated depression. The study suggests that helping workers understand when they should be seeking help would significantly boost work productivity. In addition to treatment need, 
researchers also assessed attitudinal and structural barriers to, access, to accessing mental health services. Attitudinal barriers include stigma of mental illness and the mistaken belief that treatment is ineffective. Structural barriers include financial limitations and the difficulty accessing appropriate mental health care. When all three types of barriers were removed, researchers found that loss of work productivity was reduced by nearly 50%. Improving recognition for treatment is not the only opportunity for employers. The most effective workplace mental health strategies will acknowledge the complexity of the problem and address all aspects in a comprehensive way. It is far from news that addressing mental health problems, especially depression in the workplace, improves productivity. Uh, for years now, the cost of lost productivity in the workplace due to depression has been calculated at approximately $4 billion per year. Uh, this is not by any stretch of the imagined a trivial problem. It's an extremely costly one, and yet not enough big employers or even smaller ones pay close enough attention to it. This study just adds to all the overwhelming data supporting the economic benefits of improving access to mental health care, uh, removing barriers such as stigma, and improving better recognition of mental health problems and encouraging people to seek treatment. Uh, so employers can do things like improve the recognition of mental health problems in the workplace by awareness campaigns and uh, wellness messages. They can also reduce the stigma of getting help by pointing out to people that it is a real illness, uh, that many people suffer from it and get effective treatment for it. And most of all, I think what employers can do is make sure that the benefits their employees have cover treatment for mental illness and that the costs are not excessively high. This would uh, ensure better access to mental health treatment and therefore uh, improve productivity in the workplace. There is even a, a word that was coined to capture the impact of depression in the workplace. It's called presenteeism. Now, you're probably familiar with absenteeism, right? If someone's sick, they're absent from work, obviously. That's going to cut down on productivity in general in the workplace. But presenteeism is when someone is physically at work. They're at the workplace ostensibly they're supposed to be doing their job, but because of the impact of whatever mental health problem they're having, typically depression, they're not able to do their job effectively. So even though they're there, it's as if they might as well not be there because they're not getting their work done the way they ought to be. Uh, and presenteeism uh, due to mental health problems uh, also is part of that major economic impact uh, on the workplace that I told you about. Well, this next item on psychiatry today, tonight, 
would be of definite interest to those of you who are women um, who are in menopause or approaching menopause uh, or also the spouses or partners uh, of those of you who are uh, in or approaching menopause uh, <clears throat> because this study shows that as menopause approaches fluctuating estrogen levels increase sensitivity to stress and depression. If you're feeling a little blue during the transition to menopause, there's good reason, according to this new study that was reported online this past week in Menopause, the journal of the North American Menopause Society. The study comes from the Department of Psychiatry at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and it suggests that the estradiol, which is a form of estrogen, uh, the levels of estradiol fluctuate, and this fluctuation is common during the menopausal transition, that this fluctuation may enhance emotional sensitivity to psychosocial stress. So when combined with a very stressful life event, this sensitivity due to the hormonal fluctuation is likely to contribute to the development of a depressed mood. It is generally accepted within the medical community that women are at greater risk to suffer from depression than men. Some studies show the risk is twice as great for women versus men to suffer a major depressive episode. It has been previously suggested that the greater risk is largely due to depressive episodes that are tied to reproductive events, such as perinatal depression and premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Uh, in other words, depression around or after the time of pregnancy and depression coming uh, right before the start of a woman's period. Uh, these are times when female reproductive hormones are in greater flux. In addition, the menopausal transition and early postmenopausal period are times of particularly increased vulnerability to depression for women with rates of major depressive disorder and clinical elevations in depressive symptoms doubling or even tripling compared to premenopausal and late postmenopausal rates. A substantial proportion of women between 26 and 33% will develop clinically significant depressive symptoms within the context of perimenopausal hormonal flux. The common physiological change occurring during the menopausal transition is extreme variability in estradiol concentrations, thus prompting the 12-month placebo-controlled randomized trial evaluating the mood and cardiovascular benefits of transdermal estradiol in perimenopausal women. Uh, in other words, uh, it was a one-year study and looking at the effects of mood and the effects on cardiovascular health in perimenopausal women of a skin patch of estradiol versus a placebo. The findings from the placebo group found that, in general, estradiol 
levels uh, becoming variable led to the development of depressive symptoms and also greater anger and irritability and feelings of rejection, which not coincidentally sounds a lot like uh, premenstrual dysphoric disorder symptoms. More specifically, the findings suggest that perimenopausal estradiol fluctuation may increase women's sensitivity to social rejection, and when this sensitivity is combined with psychosocial stressors, such as divorce or bereavement, or the article doesn't mention this, but I'll toss in becoming an empty nester. Uh, at this time, women are particularly vulnerable to developing clinically significant depressive symptoms. Of note, however, is the effect of estradiol variability on mood is not the same in all women. And if a severe life stress did not occur, estradiol variability did not lead to depression. Very severe, severe life stresses were defined and included divorce or separation, serious illness of a close relative or friend, significant current financial issues, physical or sexual abuse or assault, significant arrest or of self or a loved one. So in other words, again, if the fluctuation in estradiol levels was not accompanied by a severe life uh, event such as this, they didn't necessarily see an increase in depressive symptoms that was significant. Well, we'll discuss, uh, we'll wrap up the implications of these results rather, and then we'll get to other mental health related news after our next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after these messages. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. 
and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. We are talking about some research showing that in perimenopausal women, fluctuations of estradiol, a form of estrogen, combined with very stressful life events can lead to increased incidence of depression. These results provide tremendous insight for health practitioners. Clinicians need to understand the impact of perimenopausal hormonal fluctuations and the degree of stressful events that a woman is experiencing to determine the best treatment options when a middle-aged woman complains of depression or exaggerated irritability. This study provides a foundation for future studies to evaluate the value of psychosocial interventions, such as cognitive therapies, to lessen the impact of major life events as well as the use of estrogen therapy during menopausal and uh, perimenopausal stressful times. Now, of course, the use of hormone replacement therapy uh, is very, very controversial. There are several studies that have come out of a very, very large study known as the Women's Health Initiative, which <clears throat> have found that uh, use of hormone replacement therapy has been associated with complications such as heart attack and stroke and uh, has not prevented complications such as dementia. I think the data are certainly are very scary from all of these studies, but from what I've heard and read, the bottom line is if that women take the smallest dose necessary of hormone replacement therapy to keep the worst of the very difficult symptoms of going through menopause under control, uh, such as the disabling hot flashes, for example, and, and take that lowest dose for the shortest amount of time necessary to keep the symptoms under control, then the safety risks are minimal. Um, it was, uh, for the most part, women who took uh, the hormone replacement therapy at higher doses than maybe were necessary and for much longer periods of time well beyond the end of menopause uh, that probably contributed to the adverse safety findings coming out of the Women's Health Initiative and uh, all the numerous studies that came from, from the accumulation of data. Now, as far as my take on the whole point of the hormonal fluctuations that take place during perimenopausal period and rates of depression. I can speak to my own experience from treating women uh, in my uh, practice over the years and observing problems they're having. 
I have to take a little bit of issue with the study that they didn't really find significant depression in women who were just experiencing these hormonal fluctuations but didn't also uh, have to be going through a significant life stressor. Um, I think it doesn't take something as drastic as uh, a divorce or an arrest or uh, serious illness or physical abuse or assault or financial stressor. Uh, certainly there can be a combination of many lesser severe life stressors that take place uh, commonly among women in this age group who are perimenopausal, such as uh, the kids uh, graduating high school and moving out of the house, going to college, becoming an empty nester, or seeing themselves head in that direction, uh, caring for aging parents who are having increasing uh, <clears throat> health problems and perhaps uh, coming down with dementia and uh, having to deal with that as well as uh, still raise their own children. And uh, perhaps add to that, their spouse or their partner is having a great deal of difficulty with their job, uh, perhaps has to change jobs, perhaps is laid off, or maybe travels a lot for their work and thus isn't around at home enough for support. Um, <clears throat> there are many things that can add up to a good bit of stress, and that combined with the hormonal fluctuations uh, that take place around the perimenopausal period certainly can be a recipe for depression. And uh, certainly psychosocial interventions are important. Uh, psychotherapy, especially cognitive psychotherapy, can be very helpful. Uh, so too can medication. And <clears throat> although there's been a lot of talk and a lot of studies about using antidepressants to treat menopausal symptoms um, <clears throat> because of all the fears of the uh, complications and side effects of hormone replacement therapy. I really just want to say, in my opinion, I don't think that the antidepressants uh, really are that good at treating the true uh, vasomotor fluctuations uh, such as hot flashes in uh, perimenopausal women. Uh, I know there are some data on this, but really I think the data are equivocal and in my clinical experience uh, the results are mixed at best. Um, I think the benefit that women get from the antidepressant medication is more so in, in helping their mood at this difficult time because of the hormonal fluctuations. and I think the mechanism of how and why the antidepressants help at this time is similar to how they help for premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Now, <clears throat> when it comes to treating just clinical depression, regardless of what gender or what time of life, the antidepressants work by manipulating the serotonin pathway in the brain. And it takes two weeks or longer to see any results at all. Whereas when these same medications are used to treat premenstrual dysphoric disorder, they start working right away. In fact, uh, some women with premenstrual dysphoric disorder 
only have to take their medication during that week before their period and they're fine the rest of the month. Why the difference? Well, uh, it turns out that there are brain pathways that work through serotonin uh, that control the response to estrogen. And uh, these pathways are, are more sensitive to the medications than those that regulate mood regardless of uh, the impact of estrogen. And it's probably the similar story when using antidepressants in perimenopausal women uh, for those types of mood fluctuations. So I think that using antidepressants in the perimenopausal time should be thought of as something that's helpful for the vulnerability to depression due to the fluctuations in the hormone estradiol and not so much to be thought of as, well, it's a safer alternative for hormone replacement therapy when it comes to treating the very difficult physical symptoms uh, of menopause, such as hot flashes. Well, next up on psychiatry today, let's turn our attention a little bit to relationships, and uh, specifically marital relationships. Um, a study finds the power of thank you. Gratitude was linked to positive marital outcomes. A key ingredient to improving couples' marriages might just be gratitude. According to new research done right uh, nearby here at the University of Georgia, Imagine that, gratitude improving marriage. Well, of course, that's intuitive, but this study went out to document and prove that, and it was published recently in the journal Personal Relationships. It found that feeling appreciated and believing that your spouse values you directly influences how you feel about your marriage, how committed you are to it, and your belief that it will last. Well, of course. With the use of a telephone survey, the study asked 468 married individuals questions about their financial well-being, uh, their demand or withdrawal from communication, and expressions of spousal gratitude. The results indicated that spousal expression of gratitude was the most consistent significant predictor of marital quality. Well, I guess it's significant that not, you know, it's intuitive that marital or spousal gratitude would help, but that it's the most significant predictor of marital quality is uh, quite outstanding. And it goes to show the power of that little phrase, thank you. Even if a couple is experiencing distress and difficulty in other areas, gratitude in the relationship can help promote positive marital outcomes. The study also found that higher levels of spousal gratitude expressions protected men's and women's divorce proneness as well as women's marital commitment from the negative effects of poor communication during conflict. Importantly, they found that when couples are engaging in a negative conflict pattern like demand and withdrawal, expressions of gratitude and appreciation can counteract or buffer the negative effects of this type of interaction on marital stability. This, <clears throat> the author said this was the first study to document the protective effect that feeling appreciated by your spouse can have for marriages. 
and it highlights a practical way couples can strengthen their marriage, particularly if they are not the most adept communicators in conflict. Results from this study also replicated previous findings by documenting demand-withdrawal communication to be a pathway through which financial distress negatively influences marriage. Demand-withdrawal communication occurs when one partner tends to demand, nag, or criticize, while the other responds by withdrawing or avoiding the confrontation. Although wife-demand-husband-withdrawal interactions appear more commonly in couples, in the current study they found that financial distress was associated with lower marital outcomes through its effects on increasing the total amount of both partners' demand-withdrawal interactions. When couples are stressed about making ends meet, they're more likely to engage in negative ways, more critical of each other and defensive, and they can even stop engaging or withdraw from each other, which can then lead to lower marital quality. Gratitude can interrupt the cycle and help couples overcome negative communication patterns in their relationship, which may be a result of current stressors they're experiencing. And gratitude was measured in terms of how they felt appreciated and valued by their spouse and acknowledged by something they did. Well, now you know what to do to improve your marital quality. And with that, we're going to have to wrap up tonight's show. Hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week until we get together next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.